Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com. And we're back. We're back with a normal format this week by popular demand. I'm Josh Pate. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. It is Tuesday morning, at least when I'm recording, February 2nd, the year of our Lord, 2021. We are jam-packed again with a mailbag exclusive edition. You guys have submitted a whole lot of questions. We're backlogged, so we've got material for days and maybe even weeks. However, that doesn't mean you should stop sending them. JoshPate706 at gmail.com on Twitter at Late kick Josh. I was perusing, you know how rarely I like to use that word, but I was. I was perusing this morning through the five star reviews, and it turns out we're over 1300. So I figure, and I know this is lofty and I know this is aggressive, but I also know you guys. I figure 2000 by the end of spring ball, let's say, should not be out of the realm of possibility. So that's our that's our benchmark. We always love goals here. Let's aim for that one. We set 1,000, and the doubters and detractors out there said we couldn't do it, but you guys had a chip on your shoulder. It was a you-against-the-world mentality. And am I missing anything? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, and you were disrespected. They disrespected you. And you know what? At the end of the day, you guys just had to go change the way they thought about whether we could get 1,000 five-star reviews by the end of the season. So I'm here to tell you, and I don't know if you've heard this before, but you know I have inside information on this. Uh, they don't think you can get us to 2,000 either. They, hashtag they, don't think you can. You know, all the other podcasters out there, they don't think you can. So let's go ahead and do that. 2,000 five-star reviews, let's just say by the end of spring. In other news, quick housekeeping note as we get started this morning. It's a big week around here. We've got our National Signing Day show on Wednesday, which is tomorrow as I'm recording. Uncle Steve Wiltfong is in the process of driving down from Indianapolis, and he'll be joining me in studio. I think we've got an extra, extra special guest joining us in studio. And if you are a subscriber to the 24-7 Sports network of podcasts, I think it may be a familiar voice. I think that's all I'm allowed to say right now. I don't have a script in front of me, but I don't want to spoil the surprise. So check it out. It'll be on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. It'll be live tomorrow morning. And so make sure you are subscribed there if you haven't already. And we do a lot of stuff over there that is not always on the live show. So we also do some things on the podcast here, like this podcast this morning we're doing. This doesn't appear on the YouTube channel. So make sure you are subscribed to both. We've got really good questions this morning, so I'm going to shut up talking, and I'm going to start reading, and we start with Nick. Nick leads us off with this. I know it's only been a few weeks, but man, the 2021 season can't get here fast enough. Do you think we could ever see the advent of off-season friendlies, a la international soccer, in college football? Stadiums and TV slots are already reserved for spring games, so why not host a few home-and-home collaborative scrimmages in April instead? Nick, this is one of the best ideas in college football. It is one that you never get pushback on. This is one of those universal ideas that they're not doing right now, but yet when you bring up the topic and then you start ironing out the particulars, you can't really get anyone to argue with it. So let's talk this out. Here's what Nick's saying. Nick's saying, we've already got spring football, and in a normal year, so let's 
fingers crossed, let's hope we return to a normal spring format this year. You've got programs that are on the field and you get your 15 practices, whatever it is, and then you have a spring game. And so for most programs, it's full contact. It's it's good on good or it's it's ones on twos, twos on ones. But in some shape, form or fashion, most teams are playing a football game. And for the big boys like Georgia or Clemson, those games are going to be on TV. So here's what Nick is asking, and I'm endorsing the question, and I'm standing over here tapping my foot with him wanting to know why. We always talk about needing more TV inventory, and we always talk about making the sport year-round. We always talk about trying something new and trying something unique and making sure eyeballs and interest are all over college football. And there's also this added thing in the fall where people don't want to see major programs playing FCS opponents, and I'm with you on that. So why, why don't we kill like 47 birds with one stone, and we allow, let's say, Auburn to play Jacksonville State as a spring game, basically as sort of a jamboree, for those of you familiar with high school football. Why don't we just have a nice little exhibition? You actually get to watch a football game. You can do running clock and quarters. You know, you, you decide the format. The record's not really going to count. But, I mean, we could have a point spread on a spring game for once in our lives. And if you don't think people would bet on it, let me remind you, they bet on NBA preseason games. They're betting on the coin flip of the Super Bowl this Sunday. So, yes, they would absolutely bet on it. But even gambling aside, everything doesn't have to go down the road of gambling. Just think about how different that would be. Think about what kind of tentpole event it would be. Here's one of the added bonuses. So there are many added bonuses. You get to see your early enrollees in as close to game action as you could simulate in the spring, outside of practice, of course. And then also, here's, I think, an underrated aspect. You get to go into an actual game week mode in spring. Now, why is that important? Well, for players, it's obvious. But for the coaching staff, this would be your first real run-through in a game week scenario with your new coaching staff. You don't have to wait until fall. And so I got a new offensive coordinator, a new O-line coach, and a new DBs coach. Well, I get to see them. I get to put them through it. And I would throw stuff at them. You know, I would basically simulate sort of a hell week for a game week, and I would make it as hard on them as possible just to take the training wheels off in spring instead of waiting until the fall and finding out the hard way that some guys don't handle this as well as others. Hopefully you figured that out in the uh, interview process, but if you haven't, then that's a good way to figure out what you have on your hands. So I'm all for it, Nick. I think the TV guys would love it. I think a lot of coaches would love it because it keeps your players engaged in the spring. Fans would absolutely love it. I mean, if you're a Colorado fan and you haven't seen your team play since December, and especially coming off this last year, you just want to for everyone wants to forget the year anyway. And you know that you're playing Northern Colorado at the end of your spring practice session, you're going to have an actual football game in Boulder, Colorado in early to mid April. Who wouldn't want to sign up for that? Who wouldn't want to be on campus for that? It would be a great thing. I would love it. A lot of coaches are on board with the idea. I know TV executives would be on board with the idea. I'm not quite sure what button we have to press to make it happen, but Nick, if you can find it, I'll break the glass. I'll hit the button for us. Good kickoff question there, though. Thank you, Nick. Uh, by the way, I just remembered, I forgot to say this at the beginning, a lot of you have been submitting questions about Mood Tracker, like I've got several for Arkansas and Arizona. Many, many requests are coming in for the Mood Tracker. And so the Mood Tracker, most of you know what that is. If you don't, it's kind of a running franchise type segment that we do where we're tracking the mood of a particular fan base. In this case, all the fan bases. And I just want to remind you, for those of you asking, yes, fill in the blank program. Yes, we're going to get to your program. It doesn't all have to be this week because, as you can see, the Mood Tracker, 
The brilliance in its simplicity is that it's evergreen. So at any given time, you're feeling some kind of way. So therefore, at any given time, we can do a mood tracker on your program. For instance, on Sunday night, uh, so it would have been a Monday morning podcast product if you listen to it. We did LSU. Uh, we did Michigan. We did Florida last week. So we've still got a lot to come because we've only done about, with, believe me, several left to come. And if it gets to it, we may just start clustering them. If it gets to it, I may do a podcast only edition where we get a ton of mood trackers out of the way. So I'm not making promises. I'm just telling you there are many different ways that we can go. We got a lot of time between now and kickoff in September. Notice I didn't say the O word, the off season. I don't use that word around here very much for a reason I'm about to talk about a little bit later. So let's roll on here. I just wanted to remind you of that. Preston is next up. Preston says, I was actually looking for some SEC travel advice. My NC State Wolfpack are traveling to Starkville this September to play Mississippi State. That's a game I was not even aware was on the schedule, to be honest with you. So thank you, Preston. And I was thinking about going to that game. I was wondering if you would recommend Starkville as a good place to go see a game. How's the atmosphere, tailgating, and how's the in-stadium experience? Where should I go eat? Let me answer this backwards. Preston, unfortunately, and this pains me and I'm not proud of it, I am not the best source of advice when it comes to cuisine in the SEC. Now, you would think I would be since I've been all over the place and I grew up here. But here's the small problem. Up until the point where I finagled my way into this business and made people pay me to go to games, I could not afford to go on these expensive road trips. I used to see some of my buddies and their families pulling out of town every Thursday morning in their RVs. And essentially, I thought they were billionaires. You know, there was a gap between me and then anyone who can afford to go out on the road in the SEC every week. They, they must be billionaires. And I'm not so sure they weren't. because I still feel that way. But now that I got in the business, then I could go out on the road myself every week in a rental car, albeit, but I didn't have to pay for it. And so the downside, and I wouldn't call this a downside, but the relative downside to this question is I never really got to go eat like the tailgating experience and the cuisine experience that you guys normally get if you're in town Friday and then Saturday and some of you stay until Sunday. I don't really get that. I was eating basically in stadiums every time, which is great in its own right, but I don't think it's necessarily open to the public. So that portion of this question, I don't feel qualified in answering. I will say this. All you have to do is ask because people in Starkville, Mississippi or elsewhere will not be shy about giving you recommendations. Now, back to the question. Mississippi State's one of the most underrated places in America to go that I've been. So I've been to several places now. Mississippi State, I've been there for two big games. Uh, they played Auburn. Both were ranked in the top five. Yes, that happened. And it's fairly recently. Both were ranked in the top five. They played Auburn, and I want to say I was also over there when Florida came in there. Dan Mullen came in there and ended up beating them. That was a couple of years ago, too. But let me tell you, it's the most underrated atmosphere that I've experienced. So an in-stadium game day atmosphere I've ever experienced. I think I ran through this story before, but I'll just quickly kind of broach it here. When I went over there for that Auburn game, it was a really big one. It was both teams highly ranked. When I got there, I'd never been to a game there. I'd never watched a game, never covered a game there. And so as I was walking around on the field pregame, before they had even opened the stadium to the public, so some of the camera crews were walking around. Uh, some of the beat guys were there. And a lot of people who cover from the local news outlets were there. And so I saw a lot of them walking around with earplugs kind of hanging off their neck. You know, you got the little tie that connects the two earplugs. And it looked a lot like you would if you were walking around on a tarmac, but there's no plane there right now. You're ready for when the plane pulls up. You got the earplugs hanging off your neck. You can put them in with a moment's notice. So I just thought those people were soft. Like that's, that's how stupid I was. I really just thought these people are soft. 
This is not a rock concert. Kiss is not in town today. It's a football game. I'm at them every week. No one else wears earplugs. So I just put it out of sight, out of mind. Stadium starts to fill up, starts to open to the public. Warm-ups are happening, which naturally means I'm stuffing my face somewhere in the press box. And then I finally get out there down on the natural surface of the field. And when kickoff is approaching and they start to do their their pregame festivities, the first time that the stadium really got full throat with cowbells involved, with artificial noisemakers involved, never heard a sound like it in my life. Hurt so much, hurt my ears so much, I knew immediately that there was someone who was very foolish, very ignorant, dare I say stupid, walking around on the field, but it wasn't the folks with the earplugs in. It was the one kid from Columbus, first-timer, rookie mistake, without the earplugs. So I ended up being the guy who put my hands kind of earmuffing over my own ears. And it's hard to do that when you're holding a camera. If you've never tried, let me assure you, hard to cover your ears, both of them, if you're also tasked with lugging a camera around all day. So that was the first thing that stood out to me. It's an extremely loud environment, extremely loud. And even though they've outlawed the noisemakers during a play, it's really cool because they have this coordination to where if there's not a play going on, they can do whatever they want to. Then the scoreboard kind of instructs the fans basically on when to stop. Put down the cowbell, keep making noise with your mouth. And so if you've ever watched on TV, maybe if you're not listening for it, you don't pick it up. But if you go back, just pull up a random Mississippi State game, like go to the last Egg Bowl that was in Starkville, you'll hear all that clanging, all that noise. And then as the play clock starts to wind down and as the offensive line gets in their stance, maybe his quarterback goes under center, all of a sudden then you'll have the noisemaker sound dissipate and then it'll just be that that crowd noise that we're all used to. And if you've never picked up on that, you may go back and listen and say, oh, wow, what did all those people just happen to decide to do that at the same time? No, they are coordinated. And so it's kind of the way that they get right up to the edge of the cliff of the SEC rules of no artificial noisemakers without going over the cliff. So I would highly recommend a trip there. It's a very nice stadium. It's I, I know it's not talked about like Florida or Alabama or LSU, but see, that's only because they're in a conference where some of the biggest programs and greatest stadiums in the sport happen to be. And they may get overshadowed a little bit in their conference. Make no mistake, when you're comparing them within the entire picture of college football, it's a great place to go. It's way up there in the power rankings. Like I said, the most underrated game day experience, in-stadium game day experience that I've ever been around. I'm sure it would be that way for an out-of-conference game. NC State versus Mississippi State. That one is interesting. I haven't printed out my full out-of-conference helmet grid schedule. Well, I haven't put it in front of me, let's say. So that'll be a really good one. The other one, I don't know why this seems so random to me, but the other one that I'm just fascinated by is LSU going to UCLA this year. That's week one. You got Bama, Miami, you got Georgia, Clemson in the neutral site games. But then you've got LSU just making their way out to Pasadena, California. What a clash of culture. That's great. I was out there when the Alabama-Texas game happened in 2009. And I stayed, um, man, this is a really good story to tell, actually. You know what? I don't, I don't give teases often, so here's your tease. That story is coming Thursday. Your boy went out to Pasadena. First time I had been west of the Mississippi River, maybe even the Chattahoochee River in my life. And I was out there for the Alabama-Texas game. And I got to stay with someone who was a multi-multi-multi-millionaire, which means I stayed in a part of town that really I had no business staying in out in L.A., Brentwood to be exact, right off Sunset Boulevard. Great time. It was basically like a Sean Mullen song the entire time I was out there. 
But man, to witness the clash of culture and to participate in it myself, let's make no mistake about it. That was fun. So I'll tell that story Thursday. All right, we roll on this morning. Justin is up next. Extreme Justin, to put a finer point on it. And Extreme Justin, or EJ as I call him, asks, if you were the top quarterback in this recruiting cycle, straight up, where would you go and why? I thought about this way too long this morning. So it was the first question I read when I got up. And so I downed my entire 200 milligrams of caffeine in a can. And I thought about it. And I think the initial response is Oklahoma. That's a place that I know I'm going to get developed. No one goes there and doesn't get developed. So I know Lincoln Riley is going to be there. I know the program infrastructure is going to be there. It's proven. It's time tested. There are multiple examples that they can point to me and say, you could be that guy if you're okay between the years and you keep your nose clean. We're going to put you in a position to succeed. We can guarantee it. Uh, Nick Saban could easily sell me on Alabama. If I were Oklahoma, I would say, well, our, our guys have been here for a while, and this is proven. Yeah, Alabama's been incredible offensively, but they only recently made that transition. And without Starkeesian, could you guarantee that you'll get the equal there that you would here? And I guess the answer is you can't guarantee it. So maybe Oklahoma sells me over Alabama. Ditto for Ohio State. I think they could make that argument, and then Oklahoma could probably still sway me from Ohio State. Clemson would be the same way, but DJ Uyangalale just came into Clemson, so that's going to be really tough. And whereas at Oklahoma, Rattler's going to be a, he's going to be a sophomore this year, but he's going to be a redshirt sophomore, which means technically he could be out of here. You know, essentially, you're asking me to be Caleb Williams. Caleb Williams is the number one quarterback in the country, and consequently, he did pick Oklahoma. However, here's what I did. I talked myself into Texas. Here's how I did it. So I figure Steve Sarkeesian is the head coach at Texas. Now, if I'm trying to be some great analyst who predicts the next five years of Texas football record-wise, I don't know that I could do that, but I'm not. I'm just a mere quarterback who is looking for a place to go and spread his wings and make his mark on history. And so I'm looking at Texas, and the one guarantee that you can give me there, well, two of them, really. Number one, you can guarantee me that I'm going to be playing for one of the best offensive minds and developers of the quarterback position in the sport today in Steve Sarkeesian. He is going to be very hands-on with the offense. It's one of the first things he talked about in his introductory press conference there. Second thing is, it's a very favorable situation for me to come in and make an immediate impact, regardless of who they have there. If I'm the top quarterback in the country, I think I can come in, elbow my way right into that quarterback room, and earn a starting position. Keyword there, earn, children, keyword. And I know I said two things. So here's a bonus third thing. If I am a believer that I want to go make my own legacy and I want to create a new story somewhere, I can't do that at Alabama. I can't do that at Ohio State. I can't really do that at Oklahoma. If I go in there and win a national championship, granted, yes, I can. But if I were to go and I were to resurrect Texas, how quickly would they have a statue of me standing outside of Darrell K. Royal Stadium? I mean, I don't think you guys outside of Texas realize how deified Steve Sarkeesian would be if he were to be the one to resurrect Texas and which whichever quarterback is there, whichever quarterback's the one that gets the ball rolling again. You thought it would have been Sam Ellinger, but it ends up not being Sam Ellinger. And so um, if I'm the guy who comes in there and does that, imagine that they could put every sign, every road sign, whether you're coming in from Louisiana or Oklahoma or uh, New Mexico or, or, or Mexico, just Mexico in general, every road sign is going to say, this is Texas, home of JP 
who saved Texas football or, you know, some iteration of that. I'm fine. You guys can get creative with it. But the bottom line is I want to go and I'm going to create a legacy. I'm all about branding here. I want to maximize my value. And so I'm going to go win football games. I can control that as long as I stay healthy. I'm going to win you games. But what I'm also going to do is I'm going to win the hearts and minds of an entire people for an entire generation. And I know I sound very political right now, but in a lot of ways it is because I cannot play football forever. And so when I'm done playing football, I still want to demand good seven-figure numbers on the speaking circuit and the endorsement circuit. And I think I can get into broadcasting, but even if that falls through and I'm not the next Tony Romo, at the very least, I can make my way from Denton to Amarillo to Odessa to Tyler down to Brownsville over to Corpus Christi, and I can speak at every quarterback club function until the end of time, and they're going to introduce me as Texas National Championship quarterback Josh Pate. I'm going to have a big fat ring on my finger. They're going to have probably life-size cardboard cutouts of me that I can sign for $350 a pop. And that is going to be the lifestyle that I choose to live. So as you can tell, I told you, I thought this through. I'm committing to the University of Texas. Let's change the world. All right, Cal has a really good question coming up. I want to take some time on it because I think I have a couple of answers for it. And it's talking about kind of a derivative of a segment we did the other night where we were talking about stock options and we were basically doing a play on what the big news in the Wall Street world has been lately. And I was talking about the mid to long term futures of programs. And I think, to be honest with you, I left a couple of programs out. Cal has given me a perfect opportunity to include those programs. We'll do that right after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So Cal asks about the future of the ACC here. He says, how long do you think it's going to be before there's a legitimate challenger to Clemson and the ACC? Now, Cal didn't really ask about the same theme that we were doing the other night, but I'm going to tie it into the theme that we were doing. And so I talked about Texas A&M and Penn State and some other programs that I think I would buy into. Oregon was another one. Programs that are already near the top of the sport, but I still think have maybe a little bit higher ceiling than maybe the general college football public realizes. Well, in the ACC, there are two more that I could have easily included, and I just didn't because of time. Miami is one of them. Miami is a prisoner of their own initial hype. Well, at least publicly, okay? It's not in, in reality. It's not impacting the football program. But if you'll remember when Manny Diaz came in there, I remember because I got sucked into this just a little bit. I think his first game was that game in Orlando. I was there. It was a turnover fest, and it was against Florida. It was a standalone game, so they had it like a, a week before everyone else was playing, I think is the way they did that. Anyway, he had a pretty good roster, so there were a lot of returning guys, and it looked like for all the world, Manny Diaz, there were people saying, oh, he actually could have been better in year one than year two, and that, that was kind of what the predictions were. I said that in the past tense, but that's kind of what the predictions were. And I don't know if I believe that, but I did believe that they could pop really, really quickly. And they just didn't. It kind of fizzled. It was like a, a wet fuse sort of deal. And so here's what happens when people don't initially live up to your expectation. A lot of folks in their subconscious mind will just toss them to the side. 
And they'll say, all right, well, they didn't do it now, so they'll never do it. Well, here's the reality, friends. Normally, if you get hired as a football coach, it's because your predecessor got fired. And normally, your predecessor got fired because there was something intrinsically wrong with the program they were running, to varying degrees, but there was something wrong, obviously. And if there's something wrong, by default, that means there's something that needs to be fixed. And it's very hard to walk in and fix something and simultaneously win right off the bat. And so just in general, Manny Diaz had an uphill battle there. And I'm not talking about him comparing to Clemson, but just making Miami competitive in general in the short term, it was going to be hard. But have we made the mistake to possibly throw them to the side? Because Miami doesn't really enter people's minds when we talk about the next five years in college football. And maybe they should. Because if you look at what they've done with their coaching staff, it hasn't been grand slam after grand slam. It's just been single, single, double, single, double. But they're adding really good pieces. They're stacking good recruiting classes on top of each other. Their current class is ranked 12th. Uh, they've still got some room to add guys that they want to this Wednesday, tomorrow. In other words, make sure you tune into the National Signing Day show. And there may not be but a few programs in America better positioned to capitalize off name, image, and likeness when it finally comes around than Miami. So if you're looking at where they are right now, and then you look at what the buy point could be relative to the future, Miami could be very well positioned. And I'll give you another one for similar reasons in their conference that could be positioned this way. And I've talked about them a lot more. It's Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech's a program, unlike Miami, that doesn't really even have national expectation tied to the program. You think Georgia Tech football, if you're a casual college football fan, you think academic institution, they got a football program, but because of the academics, they can never really compete with the big boys. That's what you think about them. I mean, most of you are probably nodding your head right now. And it's understandable why you would think that way. I don't think that's the ceiling for Georgia Tech football. I think Georgia Tech football is probably one of the most undervalued programs relative to their potential in America. Now, I've talked about this many times, so I won't go down that entire road again. But I'm a believer that Jeff Collins, when he first came in, looked around and realized it's obviously a multi-year rebuild. Now, if Jeff Collins were to have walked in Ole Miss and he was coming in off the heels of Paul Johnson, it would be the same way. When you add in the fact that you do have those added academic filters in place and you have to overturn a personnel roster entirely from the triple option to what you want to do, then yes, you can understand. You can come in and you can sell hope and vision, but then there's going to be this wasteland. There's going to be this drought period. And you're finally trying to get over the hump and look at an oasis down the road, but it's going to take a little while. And I knew that was going to happen. When he came in and I immediately gravitated towards him because I started getting feedback from high school coaches in Georgia that said, that's the guy, man. He understands the dynamic at Georgia Tech. He gets it. Just trust us. He gets it. Previous staff did not. Uh, staffs prior really did not. He understands that you got to harness Atlanta. That's why they throw 404, which is the area code there, over everything they can. It's like a bumper sticker that won't go away, but in a good way. Jeff Collins came in and he made a lot of noise. He got a lot of people's attention, but here's what he knew. He knew I got to make enough noise as much as I can really initially, because this is going to be a couple of years, but we're going to start having to play football and we're going to lose. I mean, that's, there's no way to, there's no way around that. We're going to lose, but we have to maintain the energy off the field and we have to maintain the energy in our marketing approach to branding Georgia Tech and Atlanta, make it synonymous and capitalize. That's when I talked to him in the spring, he was big on this. Capitalize, make the things that people think are our weaknesses, like the academic hurdles, don't make them hurdles at all. Make them opportunities. For instance, in a normal year where you can have kids visit, there's a certain sort of imaginary fence 
that you can put around your campus. I don't know how many miles it is, but when you bring kids on campus, there's this certain distance that you can take them off campus where, you know, it's still like your official visit. Well, Georgia Tech happens to be in downtown Atlanta. And so very, very easily, you can get to that area where all those high rises are in downtown Atlanta, and they're full of millionaires. And a lot of them graduated from Georgia Tech. And so if I'm, for instance, planning a recruiting visit, whereas if I were to bring you to Auburn or if I were to bring you to Kentucky, we would do just normal college football things. If I bring you to Atlanta GA, I can take you down to a high rise and take you up to the 32nd floor and walk you in an office maybe bigger than your house. And I can say, hey, don't listen to me. Listen to this guy talk about what a Georgia Tech degree can do. And then I'll take you over here to this high rise. Or there may be 12 more people on this floor alone who can attest to this. Make the degree an added weapon in your arsenal that you're going to have when you walk out of here. You've got your own physical potential, but when you walk out of here with one of these degrees, let me keep reminding you, our average graduate is a millionaire. Our average graduate is earning seven figures over the course of the next few years when you get out of here. So even if it doesn't work out in the NFL, just go just go print money for the rest of your life. I think that is a great sell. And you don't have to sign 300 kids per cycle. Let me remind you again, you got to go find 25 of them. You're in one of the most talent-rich states in America. You're in one of the most talent-rich cities, area codes in America. You don't really even have to leave home if you don't want to. You can find enough kids who have it in the classroom and also have it on the field where you can create a very competitive product at Georgia Tech. So you give me Miami, you give me Georgia Tech, and I would feel pretty good about my future in the ACC. I'm not taking Clemson to the wire next year necessarily, but I think over time, if I'm not necessarily focused on Clemson and I just focus on me, who knows? Maybe we build a product in Miami or Atlanta that can be competitive with the Clemson Tigers. Doesn't happen overnight, though. Didn't happen at Clemson overnight, so it's not going to happen here overnight. All right, we'll get uh, two final questions here. One of them I'm going to push down the road. So Joe... He asked me, and Joe, I don't know if you're serious about this or if you're just kind of a sadistic Georgia fan that wants to be entertained. Either way, I think it's bright. But Joe asked, can you do a quick history of the Tennessee coaches from Fulmer to today? I have a hard time keeping up with all the drama. There have seemed to have been so many. Well, Joe, you are right. Your mind's not playing tricks on you. However, I already have this planned as sort of a post-spring. Remember, we don't use the O word. Off-season. We can whisper it. We don't say it out loud. I am going to do this in um, not necessarily an episodic format, but I want to take my time on this. Let me just put it that way. So we're going to do something along these lines post-spring. So stay tuned for that. Kevin wraps us up this morning. Kevin said, you always say you prefer the G5 having their own playoff as opposed to kind of hodgepodging their way into the conversation with Power 5 programs and there's no Real equity in the sport, therefore there's no way to do that. I was adding that in. That's not Kevin. Kevin continues now. He says, don't get me wrong. I'd love to watch a G5 playoff, but as a diehard fan of a G5 team, it makes me nervous. The divide between Power 5 and G5 would only grow. Kevin, I've talked about this before many times, and you're right. Okay, your premise is right. There is a distinct possibility that it would extend the gap between G5 and P5. I don't necessarily think, and this is where I differ from many people, I don't think involving them in the current landscape, involving them in the current college football playoff conversation, I don't think it really shrinks the gap all that much. I think what shrinks the gap, and we can kind of go long on this, but to condense it, what shrinks the gap between G5 and P5 is really having a deeper conversation about what those terms mean. Because i got to be honest with you, as I'm doing some of my off-season research, I think one of the areas that maybe 
I'm going to personally alter about the way I approach this is not lazily lumping every team into a G5 or P5 category. Because here's the fact of the matter. The fact of the matter is the top of G5, which is not a conference, it's kind of a, a group of conferences, the top of the G5 heavily overlaps the bottom of the P5. And so there are a lot of coattail bandwagon type programs out there that are enjoying that P5 status that if I dropped them into the American Athletic Conference tomorrow, couldn't finish higher than fifth, couldn't finish higher than seventh or eighth. And they'd get run over in that conference just like they do in their own conferences. And so the problem is a conference like the Pac-12 until USC steps up and Oregon's doing their part, but until other programs step up on a multi-year basis, not just one year in a, in a kind of a COVID situation where expectations are exceeded for who knows what reason. Until that happens, I'm not so sure the AAC doesn't compare very favorably with the Pac-12. And I'm not so sure, to put a finer point on it, if I started 2021 with an open season challenge and I took the entire conference of the Pac-12 and the entire American Athletic Conference and I were to match them up seed for seed, one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, who would you bet your money on? Because I'm not so sure I wouldn't roll with the AAC. And that, to me, by the way, would mean a whole lot more than bowl records would. That would that would be a, a brilliant case study. I know you can never arrange that. But if you could, it would be fascinating. So I'm not so sure the question that's begged out of that entire scenario is, what are we really doing with the P5 sticker and the G5 sticker? What are we really doing there? Are we really properly categorizing the sport of college football? And the reason that I say that in relation to this question about whether there should be a separate G5 playoff from the Power Five, the question could be this. The question could be if we are, and let's just for a second, let's say we assume we are. Let's say in a year, we think collectively the American Athletic Conference is stronger than the Pac-12. Well, if that's the case, maybe I should value the team that comes out of the AAC higher than I should the team that comes out of the Pac-12. And I'll give you another one, and this is going to kind of really blow you sideways for a second. But if I were to take you to Clemson, South Carolina, and I showed you the Tigers' schedule this coming year, they're good because they have the national profile and they have the established resume and track record, and they open against Georgia. But if Clemson were to lose against Georgia to start the 2021 season, they've got one of the weakest remaining schedules out of any Power 5 team. And I'm telling you right now, again, I don't know how it'll play out. I'll have to see the season. But as I sit here in early February, as I look at Clemson's schedule, if they were to lose against Georgia in week one, and I'm sitting here in a normal year telling you I don't believe G5 teams should be in because their strength of schedule does not warrant serious consideration, I may very well have to look at Clemson, knowing they're one of the four best teams but have lost a game, and think to myself the exact same thing I think about Cincinnati or Boise State or Central Florida any given year. Yeah, the team's good enough, but if I'm a believer that you have to meet a certain baseline requirement of strength of schedule, Clemson may not meet it. They better beat Georgia is what I'm telling you. Now, that's in my mind's eye. In reality, you and I both know, and this is where you guys have a legitimate gripe, there's favoritism shown there because if Clemson were to lose close to Georgia, but then they went out and they win their conference, they'll be in the playoff. They'll have an entire season to build that strength back up and build that momentum back up. And by the end of the year, you'd be able to say, well, if we play Georgia again today, we'd beat him, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, I think that would happen. However, you didn't ask what the committee should do. You asked what I would do. And I wouldn't even focus so much, I think, anymore. And this is kind of my mentality moving forward. I don't know that I'm going to focus so much on talking about G5 playoff, P5 playoff and college football playoff. 
what I think we may need to do is we may need to start reassessing the bottom third of that Power 5 logo and the top third of that G5 logo and wonder if there may be some more cross-pollination going on here than we previously understood. Because I'll tell you to wrap up here one more thing that's changed. It was on perfect display at the beginning of this year when a lot of the Sunbelt teams played some Big 12 teams and, and really owned them. And what happened was, I think Louisiana versus Iowa State was a perfect example. 15 years ago, 20 years ago even, and that's pretty recently to be honest with you, but 20 years ago, every Sunbelt game wasn't on TV. And so you had grown up in an era, and 30, 40 years ago especially this was true, if you were a primetime player, one of the best in America, you had to go to certain programs to maximize your exposure. Good players want to go to big programs so they can play on TV, get seen, go to the league, make money, and have generational wealth. Uh, that's the typical track that you want to take. Well, 25, 30 years later, what's happened is everybody, because of all these TV contracts, is on TV every week. If I play at Troy, I'm on TV multiple times a year. If I play at Auburn, I'm on TV every year. And those two programs are separated by about an hour, hour and a half, but yet I can kind of accomplish the same thing at both programs. It's a different caliber program, but I can accomplish the same thing. So here's what I'm saying. If I'm a low four-star receiver from Thibodeau, Louisiana, high three-star, low four-star, back in the day... If Iowa State were to offer me a scholarship and Louisiana offers me a scholarship, I'm taking the Iowa State because Iowa State is, well, let's apply modern principles. They are a Big 12 program. That means they are in a Power 5 conference, which means they are on TV every week. And Louisiana Lafayette, as we would call it back then, not so much. Well, now... Louisiana Lafayette is every bit as visible as Iowa State is. And so what you're asking me now is, all things are equal. What would I rather do? Go down the road to play college football in warm weather or go to a place called Iowa, which if I grew up in Thibodeau, Louisiana, might as well be Russia. What would I rather do? I'd rather stay home. I'm not the only one who's felt that way. A lot of other players have. That's why when you looked at that Iowa State roster versus that Louisiana roster, not only did they look way more comparable than you expected, that Louisiana team may have looked even better than that Iowa State team, even though one was G5 and one was P5. And at the top of P5, Iowa State finished the season top 10, remember. So this was not a situation where you're playing some also-ran that's going to never make a bowl game. That is what's happened, and that is what has added a lot of juice to the top levels of the G5, and that's why there's a lot more cross-pollination and a lot more meshing to where it's not nearly as clean-cut as all right, the best G5 team falls right in line, power ranking right below the worst P5 team. That's not the way that works. So I think that's the conversation as we enter the O word, off season. That's probably a conversation we're going to have a lot more. That is a wrap for this morning, though. Make sure you give us a five-star review. Follow me on Twitter, at LateKickJosh. We have got a fun week coming up. National Signing Day show tomorrow. Uncle Wilt Fong somewhere between Indianapolis and Nashville. He'll be here eventually, maybe a surprise guest in the studio. So make sure you join us over on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Thank you guys so much for supporting Late Kick. Until next time, and that'll be Thursday for podcasting purposes. For producer Jordan, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great day and God bless.